0: wrapping up our series today called A Weary World Rejoices, and you likely know that as a line from the Christmas hymn, O Holy Night. Originally, it was used to describe the night that Jesus was born in the state of the world then. However, I think most of us would say 2,000 years later, we are living in a weary world. Uh, the pandemic has certainly caused us to become weary, and there are a lot of questions right now, especially as we in this year, as we look forward to 2022, what will happen? Will things normalize? You know, will we get back to something that is somewhat stable? What will happen with the economy? I, I think right now we're just weary and we're wondering what will happen in the future. <clears throat> However, even without the pandemic, many of us this time of year get very weary. Today is Sunday, December 19th, and typically it is about this point. In the Christmas season that we start to get a little overwhelmed, just a little bit tired of it all, just a little bit frazzled with all of the holiday busyness. In fact, researching this sermon, I came across the title of an article that reads this way. The title is, Science Says We Love Christmas Until We Hate It. And the author of the article goes on to say, that in November we're real excited and we're looking forward to it and we can't wait to decorate and put up the lights and we start buying presents and wrapping presents and we're real excited until about this point in the Christmas season. And then we start to feel just a little overwhelmed and a little weary of it all. In fact, the article says this in one point. According to Victoria Williamson, Ph.D., the phenomenon of growing annoyed by endless repeats of rocking around the Christmas tree or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is something called mere exposure effect. It's the same general logic behind why a pop song is at first catchy, then familiar, then annoying. We like Christmas music until it hits its peak, and then we become overexposed. In other words, we actually grow weary of rejoicing. Now, why do I start off this Christmas series this last sermon in our Christmas series with a little bit of an Ebenezer Scrooge kind of take on Christmas? I'll come back to that in just a second. So, if you've got an electronic Bible with you where you can actually read the words, turn to Matthew chapter 2. We are going to read this morning a very familiar passage Beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. So again, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. It will also be on the screen for all of you with paper Bibles. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, "'Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews?' We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Okay, stop there for a moment. Let's look at what's taking place. Matthew first introduces us to a guy named King Herod. The original readers of Matthew's story needed no explanation as to who King Herod was. He was famous in this region. He was put in place over Israel as king by the Roman Empire who had conquered this region some 60 years before Christ was born. Herod was born in Israel, but he spent most of his life growing up in Rome, and he was an extremely shrewd politician. He had managed to him to endear himself to those who held the reins of power, and to get himself placed in this position as king over Israel. Although Israel at this point was on paper ruled by Rome, in actuality it was ruled by King Herod. Now the thing that's most remembered about King Herod is that he was incredibly paranoid. While he was applauded by providing peace and security for this region, on a personal level, he was incredibly insecure. Um, In fact, he was so paranoid about losing power that he would put to death anyone around him who he suspected was trying to betray him, including several of his own family members. Now, part of his problem was that he had ten wives. And these wives had sons, and he believed that these sons were trying to take him out so that they could take the reins of power sooner rather than later. And so he believed, maybe he was right, that they were jockeying for position to take over as king. And so he had three of his sons put to death because he suspected that they were after him. One of his wives, and according to historians, it was his favorite wife, but he believed that she was out to get him. So he had her put to death. He even invited his brother-in-law to come and to play in a sport in a pool that was much like a polo match, a water polo match. And while they were in the pool, he drowned him because he believed his brother-in-law was out to get him as well. He was so insecure that when Herod knew that he was dying, he issued a decree that all of these prominent citizens throughout Israel were to be rounded up on the day of his death and brought to Jerusalem to the Hippodrome in Jerusalem. The Hippodrome was a Serena where they had chariot races. They were to bring all of these prominent citizens there and in the Hippodrome to execute all of these leading citizens in Israel on the day of his death just so that he could be assured that there would be great mourning and sadness on the day that he died. Now... Fortunately, after Herod died, the people under him decided not to carry out this order because he's dead. What's he going to do about it anyway, right? So Herod was this famous figure so that when he wrote in his story about Herod that King Herod was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him, the readers would have said, oh, that makes sense. If Herod is disturbed... Yeah, all of Jerusalem would be disturbed as well. You did not want a guy this insane and this insecure getting disturbed. When Herod got disturbed, people ducked for cover. And so Matthew rightly wrote, Herod was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. In this section as well, Matthew introduces A group of characters that we commonly refer to as wise men. And that is a title that is not far off. These individuals were students of history and science and math and agriculture and lots of other areas of study. They were well-read, very learned individuals. Now Matthew actually calls them Magi. Magi is a name that is derived from the same root word where we get our word magic. So not only were they academics, as well, they were into superstition and astrology and spells and everything that has to do with the mystical world of magic. Now, church tradition holds that there were three. Matthew doesn't tell us that. They brought three gifts to Jesus, so we assume there were three. That's probably the most logical guess, but there could have been two. There could have been ten. We just just really do not know. Now... Even though they were very smart, learned individuals, when you read the text, the question that naturally arises is this. How did these wise men or how did these magi know about Jesus? Of course, Matthew tells us this. They respond, we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. That's it. That's all we know is that there was a star. How in the world did they connect this star with the birth of the king of the Jews? Why didn't they connect it with some other event? What made them see a star and say, that must mean that the king of the Jews has been born? How did the birth of Jesus end up on their radar screen? Now, ultimately, we don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us. None of the other gospel writers record this account. There's no way that we can know for sure. However, there is one explanation that stands out as the most logical reason that these magi showed up at the palace of King Herod and asked about the king of the Jews. Back up for just a second, about 500 years. And if you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, look at the book of Daniel. At this point in Israel's history, they were ruled by Babylon. They had been conquered by the Babylonians, this powerful nation located to the east of Israel. The Babylonians, after they conquered Israel, they carried off many of its leading citizens from Jerusalem and other parts of Israel back to Babylon. It was a way that they could contain control over people they had conquered. One of those prominent citizens was a teenager named Daniel. If you grew up in church, you know that name. When you were in Sunday school, you heard the story read about Daniel in the lion's den. How God protected Daniel in the lion's den when Daniel followed the Lord and disobeyed the order of the king. You're familiar with that story. Before that event, when we back up from Daniel in the lion's den... We read a story about Daniel correctly interpreting a dream for the king of Babylon, a man named Nebuchadnezzar. And and it was more than just an interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He called all his wise men and said, tell me what this dream means. And they said, well, tell us what you dreamt first. And he said, oh, no, no, I'm not giving it away. I want to know that you know the right interpretation. Tell me what I dreamt. This is impossible. We can't do that. You tell me what I dreamt, and then I'll know your interpretation's right. The only one who was able to do that was Daniel. God gave him a vision, and Daniel said, King, here's what you dreamt, and here is what it means. King Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed with Daniel that here is what he did. Daniel 2, verse 48. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all the wise men. Daniel suddenly was over the council of wise men who advised Nebuchadnezzar. He was the CEO of the wise men of the East Incorporated. Daniel was in charge. Now, Daniel died in Babylon, although it was Persia by the time that he passed away. Daniel died there. The Persians took over from the Babylonians, and the Greeks ruled there for a while. And then by the time of Jesus, a group of people known as the Parthians were there. But throughout all of these changes of of regimes, the governmental structure remained the same. There was basically a king with a group of advisors, a court that were known as wise men. Daniel was over these wise men, and I'm certain that when Daniel died, his scrolls were left there in Babylon. Now, some scrolls were carried off back to Jerusalem, but copies would have been left there in Babylon, in this eastern kingdom. Okay, so why is this so important? When you flip over to Daniel chapter 9, you see that Daniel had a vision of the Messiah coming. He was praying to God. He was confessing his sin before God. He was worshiping the Lord, pouring his heart out before God. And in chapter 9, beginning in verse 20, here is what happens while he's praying to the Lord. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for His holy hill, that is Jerusalem that sits on Mount Zion. So he was praying for Jerusalem, the city that had been destroyed, a country that had been destroyed. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, that's the angel Gabriel. You've been with us for this series. We've seen Gabriel. Remember, he worked overtime that first Christmas, had used all his vacation in the summer, and so he was doing all the heavy lifting at Christmas. Gabriel appears to Daniel came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So Gabriel says, you started praying, and I got word from the Lord to come and to give you this vision. Here's the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, the rest of this passage is a little confusing, but it goes on to describe an anointed one, which actually means Messiah, a Messiah who would come who would be cut off or who would be killed, the temple being rebuilt during times of trouble. The temple was rebuilt under King Herod, under the rule of the Roman Empire. So the temple that was around when Jesus was around was the temple that Herod had constructed, but it was built with, it was built under less than ideal circumstances. Then the prophecy goes on to say that temple will be destroyed And the holy city will be destroyed, all of which happened in 68 to 70 A.D. Now, here's here's what's so important. If you interpret 77s as being 77-year time periods, that is 490 years, almost exactly the time in between when Daniel wrote these words and Jesus came and these events began to unfold. Here's what I believe very firmly. These wise men had these scrolls that belonged to Daniel and they studied those scrolls. They did the math. They figured it out. They knew that this anointed one, this Messiah, was about to be born. The time was right. They saw the star. They put it together and said, that's it. And these wise men from the east, this eastern kingdom of Babylon, came to Herod and they said to Herod, We have come because we have seen the star of this one that we have read about. And so they go to King Herod, one king, to ask about the birth of another king. King Herod, where is the one who is to be born king of the Jews? Here's his response. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod essentially calls together all the Bible scholars. And he says, hey, I've got these magi that are asking about the coming Messiah. Where is the coming Messiah to be born? And they respond, that's easy. We learned that the first day of Bible school. The prophet Micah tells us in Bethlehem, this ruler, this shepherd, this anointed one will come from Bethlehem. Now, if you were here with us last week, you know we talked about Bethlehem was just this bedroom community outside of the bigger city of Jerusalem, about five miles to the south. So for these wise men, it was just an afternoon to get there, which I'm sure seemed very easy compared to the journey they had been on, that was probably about a thousand miles to get to Jerusalem. They leave from Herod and they go uh, and and they head to this little bedroom community, uh, which was also the home of King David, which was another fulfillment of prophecy. Okay, then go to verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said... Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Now, if you're familiar with this story, you know that Herod was not being entirely honest with the Magi. He was truthful that he didn't want to find the child, but he had zero intentions of going and worshiping this child. At this point in the story, you can see Herod's paranoia just going on steroids. When these magi come and say, where is this one who was born king of the Jews? He knew that this was his greatest threat. Herod was not born a king. He was appointed as a king. But he had no royal blood running through his veins. And although he went by the title King Herod it was really not an accurate title. And he felt like his reign was always on shaky ground and that the greatest threat to this reign was someone who had the rightful claim to the title king. So for Herod, whoever this child was, he would do everything in his power to make sure that that child did not see his next birthday. So he says to the Magi, when you discover his location, you come and tell me exactly where he is, you know, because I want to go and worship him as well. Verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasured and treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. After having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So again, only a five-mile journey, they make their way to the home of Joseph and Mary. By this point, Jesus is no longer a baby in a manger. He is a toddler. They have moved into someone's house. Why Joseph and Mary did that and did not return to Nazareth is not exactly clear. Although most believe that there was a scandal associated with her pregnancy and going back to Nazareth was difficult and so they stayed there in Bethlehem. These magi come and they present their gifts and then they are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So there in Jerusalem in the palace, Herod waits And he waits, and he waits, and finally he realizes that he's been duped by the wise men. So he sends his henchmen to find out what in the world is going on, and they go into this little town, this sleepy, quiet little bedroom community called Bethlehem, and they begin to put to death every male child two years old and under. In accordance with the time, that the Magi had told Herod that this child was born. But all of their murder was pointless. Joseph was warned in a dream to get out of town fast. And so he and Mary uh, and baby Jesus escaped to Egypt. Okay, here's what I want to do. I want to go back to my title slide for just a second and see how many of you are actually paying attention. If you look at the title of this message, you see the title is Bows and Bows with a question mark. And some of you may have read that and thought, well, there's a typo. Something's wrong. Somebody missed something. It's not a typo. However, you have to say it the right way. It's not bows and bows, but bows and bows. Or bows or bows. As in bowing down. You see, there are two ways to celebrate Christmas. One of the ways to celebrate Christmas is the way that Herod would have absolutely loved to celebrate it. Herod would have had no problem celebrating Christmas the way most Americans celebrate it. For Herod, Christmas would be fine as long as Jesus doesn't take center stage. Herod would have been absolutely fine with a holiday celebrating his birth as long as the focus and the spotlight. Wasn't on Jesus. For Herod, the more bows, the better. The more lights and food, uh, the more Christmas movies featuring some kid who's left at home alone during the holidays, or featuring a kid who all he wants is a Red Ryder BB gun for Christmas, you know, or a movie about a human elf going to New York to try to find his dad. Herod would have said, all of this is wonderful. We can celebrate Christmas this way all year long, as far as I am concerned. Several years ago, Lifeway Research did a study on the way the majority of Americans celebrate Christmas. And after doing an extensive survey with a lot of specific questions, here was the conclusion that they came to in the study. Americans give Jesus a head nod at Christmas but spend most of the season pleasing their eyes, ears, and taste buds with decorations, music, and meals. Many celebrate Christmas the way most have celebrated Halloween, the fun traditions without sharing the religious significance. In other words, Herod would have looked at the way that we celebrate Christmas today and he would have said, do not change a thing. It's perfect just the way it is. Years ago when our two oldest children were were very young, three and four years old, we had one Christmas that, in my opinion, had just gotten out of hand. We got home from the Christmas Eve services and I walked into our den and I looked underneath our tree and I said, it's just, it's too much. There's too many presents. Uh, It's something that's easy to do when your kids are young. You want them to wake up and be excited on Christmas morning. And we had just, we had gone overboard. And that Christmas Eve, I began to feel some guilt over the way that we had celebrated Christmas. And so that night, as we put our then four-year-old daughter and our three-year-old son to bed, we said this, in the morning, when you get up, you are not allowed to go downstairs until you come find us in our bedroom. You cannot go into the den first. Come find us first in the bedroom. So we went to bed that night, and at 4.30 in the morning, these little little people come into the bedroom, wake us up. We have to turn the light on. It's still dark outside. They crawled into the bed with us, and I said, okay. Here's what we're going to do this morning. I want to ask you, what is Christmas a celebration of? And growing up in a pastor's home, they knew enough to go, it's Jesus' birthday. Yeah, that's right, it's Jesus' birthday. So in honor of Jesus, what we're going to do before we go downstairs and we open presents, we're going to read the Christmas story this morning. And so I reached over to the nightstand, grabbed my Bible, opened it to Luke chapter 2, and I began to read that very familiar story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a, de- a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And I began to read about Mary and Joseph, and they're traveling to Bethlehem and arriving in Bethlehem, and there being no room, and so Jesus is born there in the stable among the animals, and little baby Jesus is placed in the manger. As I read the story, I could see My four-year-old daughter knew enough to keep her mouth shut. She was anxious and she was ready to open presents, but she sat there quietly. However, my three-year-old son, he wasn't having it. And I could see him fidgeting. I could see his face turning red. He had waited all December for what felt like an eternity to him for Christmas morning to come. And all the waiting that he had in him had been used up. And about the point that I had the shepherds rushing off to find baby Jesus in the manger, he just lost it. He exploded and he yelled out, Jesus, 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 I get it. I'm ready to open my presence. <laughs> what my three-year-old son expressed that morning is honestly the way that most Americans celebrate Christmas. We rejoice in things that are fading. The toys over which there's a lot of excitement on Christmas morning, but then by January they're just cast aside. The lights and the trees and the decorations that all get stuffed in boxes and shoved somewhere in the back of the attic. The wrapping paper and the bows... They get thrown into a trash bag, filling your trash can for the day after Christmas. It's easy to fall into the trap of celebrating Christmas the way that Herod would have loved. You'll miss Jesus completely. You'll rejoice in the wrong things. And you will become absolutely weary. The other way is the way the Magi celebrate it. They came, they brought gifts to Jesus, and they bowed down before him. The focus of their Christmas celebration was the Christ child. The spotlight for them was on Jesus. He was their focus. They worshiped him. They presented their gifts to him. They sacrificed by putting their own necks on the line, disobeying Herod, In order to honor Jesus. Here's the question. Where's your focus this Christmas? In your time, in your money, in your actions. How are you celebrating Christmas? The way of Herod? Or the way of the Magi? Are you rejoicing? But rejoicing in the wrong things. You've got exactly six days left. What are you going to be about this Christmas, bows or bows?